Matthias Riese, welcome. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. The topic we're talking about today is refugees and immigrants. Now, those are different categories. Can you just explain how refugees differ from immigrants? So refugees, by standards of international law, are people who need to leave a certain location, go elsewhere, because they have a well-founded fear of persecution. As opposed to that, immigrants are people who, for whatever reason, want to go from A to B, want to relocate from one country to another. And we tend to believe that refugees have a greater claim to move than immigrants. Definitely, uh, international law embodies that very much. As a refugee, you have a claim to asylum in other countries. There's no such thing generally for immigrants. Immigration is covered, for example, by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There is some discussion about these subjects, but there is not even there a general right to immigrate anywhere. But we do have, by international law, a right for people to seek asylum if they are fearing persecution where they live. When it comes to immigration in particular, the standard view is mm -hmm. that this is a responsibility of states. It's up to mm -hmm. states to decide how many immigrants they want, what types of immigrants they want. That is the political reality in our world. That is how many people think about it, that regulation of immigration is a purely discretionary matter of state government. So the White House can decide or Downing Street can decide what kind of immigration we want to have, how many people we take, or current issue in the United States, whether we want to build a wall to Mexico, right? So it's a matter of governmental discretion. That is a widespread view and standard political practice in our world. You take a slightly different view. You have this idea of global justice. You better explain what that means. Global justice generally has been a fairly prominent part of political philosophy in the, in the last several decades, is concerned with thinking about what people owe to each other at the global scale. So we are much more used to talking about justice at the domestic level. So how should we arrange domestic institutions? For example, how should taxation be arranged? How should the schooling system be arranged? What kind of obligations do citizens have to each other? These are questions of domestic justice. And and global justice is extending this kind of question to the global level. What do we owe to each other? What obligations do we have to people who live in other countries, who live in possibly far-flung parts of the world? And then you can think about topics such as, do we owe some kind of redistribution? Do we owe other societies support in building institutions? Do we owe measures in the domain of immigration, for example? But the general theme there of global justice is to think about what we owe to each other at the global scale rather than just limited to one country at a time. And is the idea then that our obligations and duties to people beyond our own borders is as great as it is to those within our borders? I have written a book very humbly called On Global Justice. And yes, one theme that I develop in some detail in the book that, in fact, across quite a range of domains in the transnational context, we do have obligations of justice to other people. So obligations that are as important and as weighty as obligations of justice that we have domestically. And one such context is immigration and refugees. So just to be clear, if somebody wants to move to our city from another country, 
they have as much right to do so as somebody who wants to move to our city from the neighboring city. It's a little bit different. So if you think about the domestic context and you think about what citizens are entitled to be doing in the country that they share with each other, then one plausible thing to say about this and one that's also rather widespread practice is that they do have freedom of movement within that country, right? So as citizens, they are part of that overall structure, that particular country, and they can decide where to settle down. If you are a person living in country A and you want to leave country A, you want to go elsewhere, you do have a right to go elsewhere. You have a right to leave that country, but that you have a right to enter one particular other country is not so clear. So you have this idea of kind of expansive right to settle elsewhere, although not in any particular country. On what Mm. is that based? The general approach that I'm choosing to this kind of question is in terms of humanity's collective ownership of the earth. The idea there is twofold. So on the one hand, we have the planet Earth. The planet Earth is, as far as human beings are concerned, just there. None of us has done any more than anybody else to actually put the resources and spaces of this planet there. It's independently given. Uh, No accomplishment claims are there. That's part one of the idea here. The other idea is we all need this planet, right? So we all need the resources and spaces of the Earth, and we don't just need them locally. We need the overall ecosystem of the Earth to survive for any human activities. So putting these two things together, the idea then is to say that of any two human beings, no matter when and where they live, each one of them should have the same claim to be using the resources and spaces of the Earth. And if you find that acceptable, that we have the sort of equality of claims to be using the spaces and resources of the Earth, then a natural next step from there is to say, if you live somewhere where things really don't work out for you, where there is a war or a drought or for whatever reason, then you have the right to go elsewhere. And it is not a matter of charity or grace that other people are letting you in, but that's simply an expression of what it means for us to be sharing out the space to which nobody has any special entitlements. When we use the term natural resources, we tend to mean minerals, Mm -hmm. rivers, resources of energy, Those are the things that we each have an equal claim to. Yes, exactly. If you think about how ownership in the more specific sense works in, you know, the way it's regulated in the law, there is normally some story of how you came by something that explains why you would own it, right? You have done something to accomplish that. And here the idea is, as we are reflecting on what kind of entitlements should be possible in the first place for these natural resources and spaces of the earth, then that thought kicks in that says, well, none of us has done anything about them. Neither you nor I have done any more than the other to actually put this there. And so as we are thinking about how to regulate access to the resources and spaces, we need to keep that in mind. Imagine Mm -hmm. that you've got a hotel that owns a private beach And the Mm -hmm. hotel owner says, well, we acquired this private beach 400 years ago from the local municipality. You're saying they have no right exclusively to use that beach? The standpoint that I'm defending is a somewhat more detached and abstract one, right? I'm responding to the question of how can we justify any kind of ownership arrangements in the first place? What is a standpoint from which to evaluate how ownership is regulated? 
And there I'm saying, well, whatever you do in the more specific national context and domestic property law, you've got to keep this basic point in mind that the natural resources and spaces of the earth are just there. And that generates a certain equal kind of entitlements of all human beings to them. Now, when you ask me about specific situations like this hotel at the beach, you are asking these situations from within a given property system, right? So, of course, a lot of considerations apply how we normally do things, how we have always done things. So it's perfectly fine to answer that kind of question and give a lot of credit to the specific features of the context. But every once in a while, we also need to step back from that and wonder about the basic features, how we generally regulate property. And when we are talking about immigration, that is one such context, right? When we are thinking about, is it generally okay for us to say, People simply are not allowed to come into this country because we have been doing these things here. Then we need to step back and also think about well, how could we possibly be entitled to be doing it this way? So that's a different kind of question context. So what does that actually mean in practice? There are mm -hmm. lots of countries where there are wars going on and hundreds of thousands, millions of people on the march trying to get mm -hmm. to other countries. Mm -hmm. There are some countries that are rich, there are some countries that are poor, there are some countries that are very populated, other countries that are not densely populated at all. What are the implications for your theory on where immigrants, refugees should be allowed to move? I think the single most important implication of this general standpoint for policy purposes really is that immigration is not a discretionary matter for states. So it is wrong to think that the United States or the United Kingdom or any other country can simply unilaterally decide what makes most sense for them in terms of immigration, that they can simply think of that regardless of how it affects people in other countries. So the most important implication of my standpoint is that immigration policies themselves must be justified also to people who don't belong to that country, who don't live there yet. Immigration policies need to be justified in a global context rather than just to the people who get to vote for the next president. You know, so that's very important for present purposes about Trump deciding to build a wall to Mexico. Right. So that policy is an expression of this viewpoint that the United States can just unilaterally decide what kind of immigrants we want and my viewpoint implies that that is not the case, that we need to think of immigration in a global context. So now you're asking specifically about, so there's a conflict and people want to leave from there, or maybe people just want to relocate for the sake of economic betterment. Where can they go? Well, where exactly they can go would be a question of international agreements, right? So the countries would have to decide how to sort out where people can go. What my viewpoint implies is that these people who want to go someplace else have a claim to the international community that they somehow sort this out. They have a claim to be taken in somewhere. I understand that. And that's obviously a very important shift in how the problem is viewed. But more specifically, can we say anything about what this claim would look like and how immigrants and refugees would be distributed around those countries that are taking people in? Yeah, let me say something about that in reference to uh, recent events in the European Union. So uh, last year, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, made a lot of enemies in the European Union by deciding that Germany would take in a lot of refugees who came through southern Europe, many of them from somewhere in Africa or in the Middle East. 
And from the viewpoint of the theory that I'm defending, how I would describe what she is doing is she is basically saying we as Germany acknowledge that there is such an obligation as a matter of global justice for us to take in these people. And why are we doing it as Germany? Well, not because Germany has a particular responsibility for what was going on there, not because Germany has caused this, the problems, not because there's anything particular about Germany. But for one thing, Germany is doing well economically. So Germany is in a position to be taking people in. Many of them expressed an, an explicit interest in going to Germany. So in this case, there's nothing particular about Germany as a matter of moral obligation to take these people. They have a claim to be allowed in somewhere and Germany, it, it made sense given the political constellation for Chancellor Merkel to take this kind of leadership at that moment. You talk about an equal claim to the natural resources of the world. Some countries are much more economically successful than others mm -hmm. for various reasons. Do people in Sudan have an equal claim to the riches of America as people in New York or L.A.? No. So that's a controversial part of my theories. My theory uh, has been attacked both from the left and the right, as it were. And so people from the right would say, well, come on, we have to stick with the traditional understanding of immigration as a very discretionary matter. We can do with our borders what we like. That is the right wing criticism. The left wing criticism has said, well, once you say that we share the natural resources of the earth and that based on that, people are allowed to move around in the world based on the idea that humanity has these collective claims to the natural resources and spaces of the earth, why wouldn't you also say that every new generation of human beings has a collective claim to all the social accomplishments, everything that's been produced by markets and, you know, in the previous generation? Why aren't they equally entitled to all of that? Now, my response to that is to draw attention again to the basic ideas behind this approach that thinks of humanity as having these collective ownership claims to the resources of the uh, earth, namely, first of all, that these resources and spaces, as far as we human beings are concerned, are just there, right? We didn't put them there. We didn't create them. We don't have any accomplishments connected to that at all, right? And the other position was that we all need the overall ecosystem of the planet to survive and for all our human activities to unfold. So it's these two points together are the starting point for that idea that humanity somehow has to think about how to share out the usage of resources and spaces and also over generations. One thing that is very different when you are talking about things that were produced by human beings that involve simply input, people do something by hand or they think about things, they do engineering stuff, right? They produce things together, they exchange them on markets. So it's a human activity that's involved there. One thing that's very different from the natural resource situation is that this does indeed involve human activity. And once it involves human activity, you can no longer say that nobody has any particular entitlements to that. People in New York are more closely connected. They are part of the cultural context that makes it possible that certain things are being produced and circulated and maintained. And people in South Sudan are not part of that cultural context that does that. We don't live in the world that you would like to live in. So most people still think that it's states who have the right to decide and that people don't have a claim on other countries to take them in. But nonetheless, we live in a world in which lots of people are on the move. 
And there's been a backlash against it. Even the limited amount of immigration that we have has produced an enormous political backlash. You're suggesting going even further. Yeah, I'm suggesting to go even further. So, of course, you know, change comes slowly. I mean, if you if you just think about the general setup that we have in the world, right? So we live in a highly interconnected world where ideas are bouncing around. There's a lot of integration in terms of what people do, what structures we build, what institutions we build, what fashions we follow, what books we read, right? So there's an amazing amount of cultural convergence happening, diversity notwithstanding, but there's a shared space of ideas. There's a shared space of economic activity. There's a lot of moving around of people, and yet we politically live in a world where there's one state next to the other, as if there were one discrete space next to the other. And of course, that creates a lot of tensions, right, that we have all the integrated economic and cultural spaces, but then political regulation happens from governments for particular countries. And that creates a lot of discomfort at any number of levels. Yes, so I'm suggesting, and you know, among philosophers these days, that's not a very idiosyncratic view, that we need to take at more face value the fact that we have all these integrated cultural and economic spaces and that the political reality needs to move. States need to understand that in light of all this interconnectedness, insisting on the discreteness of policy spaces is no longer a thing that we can do in the 21st century. But my suggestion is that that's perhaps quite a dangerous political thought. Donald Trump got elected in part by banging on about immigration Mm. and Mm. you're recommending countries to have a more generous approach to immigration than already exists in America. People don't want it. Uh, Yes, Donald Trump, like a lot of people on the right, persuaded people, in particular in the working class, that one of the sources of their troubles was a lot of immigration, especially a lot of illegal immigration. Donald Trump also persuaded a lot of people, he explicitly said in his inauguration speech, that the reason why working class people have trouble hanging on to lifelong jobs is that practically other countries are stealing jobs and factories from underneath them, right? That, to my mind is just a piece of propaganda. The reason why these people can't get by the way they used to is because the fruits of globalization are distributed in extremely unequal ways. So the privileged and wealthy, in particular in the United States, and Trump is definitely one of them, have found very clever ways of channeling the gains from globalization into their own pockets. And the relative status of the working class for that reason has been shrinking over the last several decades. And now they're persuading people that it's not that, but in fact, they're blaming it on other countries and on immigration. So this is a horrible piece, but unfortunately also a horribly successful piece of political demagogy. Part of the jobs of philosophers or anybody who sees a bit about these contexts is to actually convince people that they bet on the wrong horse. I'm sure you're right. Your arguments are very compelling about the real explanation. But again, bringing it down to the practical political level, the anti-immigration message Mm -hmm. is very effective in the state setup that we have. And proposing a more magnanimous approach to immigration could create an even greater political backlash. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Look, I'm a philosopher, but I'm also a philosopher teaching at a policy school. I am very cautious not to make proposals that are completely outlandish. So at the political level, I am not suggesting that we should simply allow for more immigration and leave everything else as it is. To think of immigration as a matter of global justice, that is a project that needs to go along with a number of other measures. As we are concerned about bringing more justice into the world, yes, we also have to care about people in other parts of the world, but only to the extent that we are also willing and capable to bringing more justice in the world for the locally disadvantaged people. Globalization is a great thing, but the gains from globalization are distributed extremely unequally, unevenly. So what we need to do is we need to take those gains and make sure that they're distributed more adequately among the less advantaged in the world. And that will mean for the less advantaged at home that we have to take care of their need to have meaningful economic life at home. And then also understand that there's people in other parts of the world who may have to relocate. We cannot think of these problems as something that needs to be solved one at a time or the global stuff first and then the domestic stuff. We need to have the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that too much wealth has gone to the 1% in recent times and that keeps us from attending to obligations of justice both domestically and abroad. And it is a great tragedy that the domestically disadvantaged are being persuaded that poor people abroad are the cause of their troubles rather than the privileged at home who refuse to let everybody share appropriately in the gains from globalization. Matthias Wieser, thank you very much. Thank you.